Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Serena Zabin, the author of The Boston Massacre A Family History. This is her third book. She's the chair of the history department at Carleton College. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Zabin. Thanks for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. In high school, you learn that the Boston Massacre, March 5th, 1770, was about two sides coming violently together in a history-changing clash that pits evil, powerful British soldiers against poor little colonists who were in the process of realizing that maybe this just isn't for us anymore. The British soldiers shoot and kill five people, they wound six, and they provide fertile ground for colonial leaders to spread propaganda. But Dr. Zabin's book argues this wasn't really two sides, but rather many sides, intermingling sides, intimate relationships, and that when the British soldiers fired, they weren't shooting the others, but rather members of the community they all belonged to. So first of all, when did you realize, Dr. Zabin, that the story we, were, we are told of the British massacre was flawed? You know, to be honest, it, it took me an embarrassingly long time to figure out that the story wasn't right. I had been teaching, actually, a um, par- part of the material that goes into all that we know about the Boston Massacre, which are these collections of depositions that were taken right after the shooting, some by the British Army and some by the town of Boston, and then they're collected and published as pamphlets. And I taught them fairly regularly without, I think, really paying attention to the stories that were embedded in them. And then finally, one day, I read, honestly, the very first deposition that talks about a soldier's wife in a Bostonian's house who's making threats and um, threatens to actually Uh, put stones in her handkerchief and beat people's brains out if she sees them lying on the street. And everybody else had always read that as another indication of the threats that the British army made against Bostonians. But finally, I looked at that and I thought, who is this soldier's wife? I, I don't think I realized that soldiers came to Boston with wives. And why is she in a Bostonian's house? What in the world is she doing there? Who invited her? And when I started asking those questions, I started pulling on these strings and all of a sudden the story was just sort of lying there in plain sight. All of these soldiers' wives, all of these soldiers who are marrying locals, all of these soldiers and their families living in Bostonians' houses. And we just hadn't known that story before. The description of the massacre is flawed in part because of the propaganda that was formed almost from the moment the last shot is fired. The book opens with the two printings and we've seen them. I mean, they're famous printings of engravings that were made. Can you describe Butcher's Hall? And I'm putting that in quotes and what the engravings show. And then also how Paul Revere sought to cultivate the certain takeaway from what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the engraving that Paul Revere made of the bloody massacre is maybe the only thing that most Americans actually feel like they really know about the Boston massacre, partly because it's one of the very few engravings we have from the 18th century, from the kind of pre-revolutionary period. So it's reprinted everywhere, right? In every textbook. And and there are the the puffs of smoke and you see the soldiers lined up and there are these little colonists scattering and the soldiers are looking down the barrels of their guns. Exactly. So, and, and the commanding officer is standing safely behind the soldiers, <laughs> waving his sword, clearly ordering them to fire. And these hapless, nicely dressed Bostonians are you know, being mowed down, lots of gore, lots of blood. One woman standing in the middle of the crowd with her hands up to her throat, you know, clearly anxious. And then, yes, this um, behind the soldiers, the the building that they were defending, um, 
is labeled carefully the customs house, which indeed it was. And then above it, Revere adds butcher's hall. And above that, actually, he has a couple little puffs of smoke that maybe indicate that there were more gunshots that were actually coming out of the customs house. They, that probably wasn't true, but he adds it anyway. And he wants people to not just get mad at the shooters, but to draw larger conclusions. This is also about taxes. Absolutely. The real butchers are actually not the guys who shot the guns. They are the officials and the British um, uh, government that sent the troops there. Those are the butchers whose hall the customs officials live in, work in. So uh, before we get to this community that is formed, that these different participants are all a part of, let's just set the stage a little bit. Let's have you set the stage a little bit um, concerning the situation between the colonies and the crown. Where are things on this? At least we're told that there's this inexorable march towards war that has begun, uh, I guess, a few years before 1770 hits. where is all that? And um, even before we get to how this community of Boston is forming. Sure. So um, 1763 is sometimes a good time to start. So 1763 marks the end of the Seven Years' War when Britain has pretty much pushed colonial other, other colonial European powers, that is to say the French and the Spanish, much further west and north of in North America. And it looks like the threats to the British colonies from those European empires are, you know, are pretty much gone. It looks like everybody should be happy again. And sure enough, people in Massachusetts are thrilled. They're, they are so happy to be part of this very powerful British empire that just knocked the French um, out of North America for the most part. And, um, and it looks like everything is kind of hunky-dory. Um, but then the British government is faced with this problem that they suddenly have an enormous new empire that they have to figure out how to organize and how to govern. And of course, they kicked these European powers out. But those Europeans, especially the French, had lots of indigenous allies who had not ceded their land to the British, who are still living there and still defending their land against British colonists. So there's still a need for troops and there's still a need to pay for those troops. So after 1763, the British government is trying to figure out how it's going to pay for this huge new empire. And as a part of doing that, they start looking at some other taxes to raise some money. And that starts to be the source of the, of, of the conflict. The question is, how should these taxes be paid? Who should be paying them? What are they going towards? And the first one is we maybe most famously know that really sparks um, a protest is in 1765, the Stamp Act. And the Stamp Act in 1765 Boston does create a number of, you know, um, hardy riots that include, um, you know, burning a few buildings and tearing some down and scaring the daylights out of the lieutenant governor. And it's not just the taxes per se, right? There's also a feeling that we're not getting enough out of these taxes, that the taxes are going to a far off place and it's essentially taxation without representation. So, right. The, um, especially the Stamp Act seems really unfair. People both are, colonists are both unhappy about the taxes themselves, but they really do feel like the demand for taxing um, all kinds of paper goods seems um, like the wrong way for them to collect taxes. That um, that really, they're, they claim to be willing, at least, to collect the taxes themselves if the government would just tell them how much they owe, they'd collect it themselves and they'd send it back to Britain. And the British government, really in some attempt to, um, to show that they want to centralize the regulation, the administration, their government a little more, says, no, we'd like to do this from London. And the problem with the Stamp Act is that it it's a little stupid from the part of the <laughs> British Empire because unlike, you know, 
uh, unlike other taxes that they might levy. So for example, sometimes when the British um, government needs more money, they'll, they'll put a tax on cider, right? Which is the working man's drink. Um, and they'll raise some money that way. But when you put a tax on paper, and especially on legal paper, right? What you're, and on newspapers, of course, what you're doing is actually setting yourself up for um, scoldings, if not more, from really the most vocal and the most articulate and the most educated men in the British colonies, right? Who are lawyers and newspaper publishers. So the protest is maybe a little bit unsurprising. Don't pick a fight with a guy who buys ink by the barrel. Exactly. Um, all right. So uh, let's get to Boston. I love Boston. It's a wonderful city. And this comment is not about Boston of today. It's about Boston of the 1770s. Uh, you say the governor considered Boston unruly and ungovernable. And I promise that is not about Boston of today, um, <laughs> despite what some people might think. And I love Boston. It's a beautiful place. Um, what was life like in Boston who was living there. It's a complicated web like any community. It is. So the Boston of 1770 is in many ways very unlike the Boston of today, which is a Boston I also love. Um, but in 1770, Boston is a lot smaller, first of all. It's only about a square mile. All, all of your listeners who may know Boston at all or maybe know the Back Bay are perhaps aware that the Back Bay is really just landfill um, and it didn't exist then. So it's just a peninsula that's about um, a square mile. It's, it has a population of about 16,000 people, which means actually it has the same population density today that it did then. So it's actually a pretty densely populated little place, but 16,000 folks is not a lot, right? And a square mile is not a lot. Um, it is um, predominantly a white, um, a, a white town and it's a town, not a city. It has a town meeting and has selectmen doesn't have a mayor, um, but it has both a number, probably between five and 10% of its population um, are African descended, many of whom are enslaved. Um, so it does have an enslaved population and it does have indigenous people living there, although not as independent sovereign people, although those people are living right outside Boston. Um, so it's, it's a pretty diverse place. And it's the other thing that I think is interesting about it in 1770 is that it's majority female. It has more women than men. How does this complicated web start? Because I guess when you think about it, um, because the British are essentially occupying it um, or the British consider it their property, um, but then you have people who are being born there um, and who are living their lives in Boston and living their lives in the colonies, how does this complicated web start to form? You know, you think about it and all of a sudden you think, well, um, these people are really part of um, one community and it's impossible to keep them separate given the way human nature works. Right. So um, when the troops come to Boston, they come in the fall of 1768. And, and I'm assuming that's where you sort of asking me to, to pull together the story. So, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, um, yeah. So the troops, when troops show up in 1768, because the governor, as you said, has declared this place ungovernable, <laughs> right? And he is, um, he's sure that there's no way he can enforce the new taxes that are coming down the pike, right? They've gotten rid of the Stamp Act. That, that one's been repealed. But in 1767, the British government comes up with some more taxes they call the Townsend Acts, and they decide they're going to collect those on imports, and they're going to put the head of the Customs Service in Boston. Again, maybe not the smartest move, but there they are. So they come, there are more protests, and the governor panics, um, and he asks the for backup. And it's worth knowing, I think, that there's no such thing really as a police force in the 18th century. So when a political person like a governor wants some support for, um, for his policies and people are riding in the street to object to it, what he does is ask for 
troops during peacetime to serve as a kind of temporary police force. It's kind of a lot like the National Guard, actually. I think that's maybe the easiest comparison. One of the things that's really interesting, um, well, do we say enough about how the community is formed? about how these people start interacting. Let's talk about that. No, let me pull that yeah, piece together. Yeah, I'm sorry. Ahead. No, no, no. I want to make sure we um, get it all here. There's, there's so much. Um, so when the troops come in the fall of 1768, um, they end up being um, housed in this little peninsula of Boston. And I can unpack that story afterwards if you'd like. Um, and um, and they, they end up living in Bostonians' extra rooms and in their basements and in their sheds. They live for a while in Faneuil Hall and they camp out on Boston Common. But as the weather gets cold, it's clear they need to move inside. So they end up in all of these Bostonians' houses. Bostonians end up renting their extra space to the army. And the army needs housing for the troops. So it's like a massive Airbnb operation is essentially what happens. Um, and as they do so, as both single men from the army and these military families move into Bostonians' houses, they really become neighbors. They get to know each other pretty well. They marry each other. They become godparents for each other's children, in the, whom they baptize in the local churches. And one of the things I think is fascinating with this book is that there are a number of situations that arise where... The British Army gets used to using force or doing things with an iron fist um, or maybe something slightly, maybe one degree less than an iron fist, but it's still kind of antagonistic. So there's a part that, um, where the British Army expels natives and there's a part where this armada comes in from Canada, which is, I, I think, some of what you're referring to there. And there are all these sort of weird moments where... Um, they're not asking permission to do things. And it kind of sets the stage for this discontent that eventually turns into the Boston Massacre. Can you just expand a little bit on the way the British viewed the governing of these colonies? Sure. And I think that thinking about it as the governing, the problem is the governing of, this policy, of the colonies is precisely correct. That, you know, all the people who are living in Boston consider themselves British. It's not that they're so opposed to Britain. What they don't like is, you know, the government and they don't, and they particularly don't like this governor. Um, and so they don't like the way in which the, um, the government is organizing them, is, or, is orient, orienting the town of Boston into the larger empire. They are pretty happy, you know, kind of, um, living on the edge of the Atlantic Rim um, on their own. They loved being part of the British Empire. They were proud of it. Um, but they, they like to run their own town, right? They're happy to give the money that they feel like needs to happen to run the, the empire. Um, but they don't want it taken right from them. So really the split is not between people who think of themselves as British and people who think of themselves as not British. The split is between people who support the governor and people who think that the governor is overstepping his authority. Is there rapid social change happening during these times? I mean, I know that the finances and that the government is all part of this and the, the, the views on how the government is um, is dealing with the people who are living in Boston. But what's happening, like, you know, I'm going to try to think of an example, but you think about the changes of the 1920s where jazz music takes over, or you think about the changes of the 1960s where feminism starts to rise, um, or you think about the changes of the 1980s and 90s where rap music goes mainstream. What was happening socially that was changing, that was giving people new views on how they wanted to be governed? That, that is such a fascinating question. There, there is, I think, a, um, a conversation that's happening in the newspapers, largely through print, but then people are talking about it. Um, that is a kind of moral philosophy, which is this question about what are people's obligations, right, to each other? What are people's rights 
And as a converse of the question of rights, right, what do they owe to each other? So the question of how do you create a community, I do think that that is developing and it shows up in, um, in some kind of bad poetry, um, but it shows up in these philosophical essays that are sort of tedious for us to read now, but really did seem to make an impression on the kinds of things that people were talking about. And then the other major social change that everyone I think is really experiencing is this explosion of consumer goods, right? So there's so much um, stuff coming into Boston. A lot of it is fabric, right? So there's more and more clothing and stuff that you would use to make clothing. So dry goods is what we call them. But, um, but there's also, you know, lots of slave produced sugar that's coming through, right? Um, and so there's an expansion of both rum and molasses that's being processed in Boston and then being sold. Um, and there's all kinds of other um, kind of goods that that you don't necessarily need, but you want. So things like China, right, for drinking your tea out of, um, looking glasses, right, mirrors, so people can start to see what they look like. Before the 18th century, people didn't have a really good sense of what they looked like. I'll be darned. That is weird. That is really weird to think of. Yeah, they really, they just, they just didn't really know what they look like. That is, okay, I'm going to have to think more about this. I don't have time to think about it now, but once we finish this episode, I'm going to think about that. What if you didn't know what you looked like? There were no pictures and no mirrors. What do you do? Um, uh, And I guess what you're really saying is Americans are really good at buying things, and we have been for a really long time, things that we don't necessarily need. Um, And then they boycott them, right? (laughs) That's the great thing about having all that stuff come in is then you can say, well, actually, the way we're going to protest is we're going to stop buying, and then everyone freaks out. The prices are too high. I'm not going to any more of these baseball games or buying any more of that exactly. stuff. Um, uh, uh, how do we start getting towards the Boston Massacre? How do we start, or what's called what we call the Boston Massacre? Now, I don't want to use the word massacre until it's, until it's appropriate, but how do we start getting to the point where these sides, many sides, interconnected sides are going to have this world-changing clash? Right. So we have you know, 17 months or so when there are about 2,000 soldiers and hundreds of women and children now crammed into this little peninsula that already had 16,000 people on it, right? So it's crowded. There's a lot of people there. And, you know, it's easy to irritate your neighbors. And so there's a lot of irritation and annoyance that's going on here. But none of that seems to rise to the level of you know, something that's going to be called a massacre, right? Instead, there's just lots of sort of daily annoyances as well as these daily connections. And that goes on for a while. And it actually looks as though the presence of the troops has kind of calmed down the political protest enough so that there are four regiments that come initially um, and two of them leave the following summer. It looks like the whole thing is going to be over. And everyone except the governor is really pleased by this idea because the problem with using troops as police is that they're not suited for that. They're not trained for that. They don't know how to do that. Um, It happens with some frequency, but every British army officer knows that the likelihood of there being some kind of clash that will become a crisis is very high. So in fact, as soon as most of these officers learn that they're being sent on a peacekeeping mission, essentially, right, as a policing mission to Boston, most of them start asking to be sent back to Britain. They're like, no, 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 I don't want this job. Please. I'm not going I, to you Boston. Know, my mother's dying, yeah. you know, unending. I've got family business. I've got to get home. Um, because they know that the likelihood of somebody shooting a gun is so high that someone's career is going to get ruined by this because it happens over and over and over again back in Britain or in Scotland or in Ireland. They've seen it. Um, So I would say nobody's really surprised. Every day, I think I write in the book, it's a little bit like a roll of the dice, right? Is this the day that, you know, this particular little shove in the street is going to escalate? Or, you know, are people just going to let this one go again? Um, and there's a lot of days that it's not clear which one's going to happen. 
So then we get to March 5th, 1770. And this might be my favorite passage in the book. I love the way you describe this. In the book, you say, from the moment their guns went off, the spotlight of history has focused its narrow beam on the British soldiers. Uniforms are meant to disguise difference. And in their bright red coats, they may have seemed interchangeable. Each soldier who took part in the massacre was just as much an individual as any of the others who had married a local woman, buried a child, or deserted from the army. Some had made friends, others made families. So describe as best you can what happens the night of March 5th, 1770, and who's shooting who? Right. So, and, and it's not easy to describe what happened that night. We have a lot of eyewitness testimony, and most of it is contradictory, right? Which is true of so much eyewitness testimony, of course. Um, and it's maybe worth remembering, Boston had no streetlights. Um, and, you know, whatever this event was seems to have started around 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the evening in March, which is pretty dark. Um, so what we believe, no, it ha- what we believe happened is um, that there is a century, as there has been um, through this entire time in front of the customs house, and he starts to get kind of harassed by some kids who are walking by. Are they little kids? So are they 12? Are they 16? There's sort of a difference. Um, and people are a little unsure, you know, who these people are. Um, is it possible? I'm sorry. Is it possible they're younger than 12? Is it possible they're six, seven, or eight? Or do we think it's teenage years? We think it's kind of towards the teenage years. Although there's, there are accounts of other kids younger than that right, who claimed to have been hit by soldiers um, out in the street that night. Um, but the ones that are kind of hassling the sentry are probably not the six to eight-year-olds, right? Um, and, but there are other, other kinds of conflicts that seem to be happening in other parts of Boston that night, as there were on other nights, actually. But, um, but a woman comes out of the tavern next door and says to the sentry, do you know what's going on? And he says, no, I, I really can't tell. Um, but eventually more people seem to come and start yelling at the sentry and he tells them to leave and they don't go. And so he gets pretty anxious and he calls for some backup. And there's um, a number of soldiers sort of in a, um, in a guardhouse just a few hundred yards away they hear him. They come marching out with the captain of the day um, to support him. And as they come up the street, we're now right in the center of Boston, right in front of what's you know now the old state house, sort of what passes for the public square of Boston. Um, one of the men who's also on the street recognizes one of the soldiers as a former neighbor, and he walks over and say, "Hey, what's doing? You know, what's going on?" And the soldier says, "I have no idea. Um, you know, I'm I'm just doing my job here." Um, but meanwhile, the church bells start ringing, and other Bostonians come out. Some Bostonians claim that they came because they knew that there was going to be a fight and a riot. Other Bostonians claimed that they came out because they thought it was a fire bell. Right? They thought it was a fire. They claimed they came out with their buckets. They were ready to put out a fire in this wooden city. Boston had seen a big fire in the 1760s and much of it's still wooden. Um, so it's not clear what they're doing there. And at some point, there are between you know 50 and 300 people in this square, which is a big rage, right? Again, we don't really know how many people end up there. Um, but enough that the... Um, Soldiers, all the soldiers start to feel pretty anxious and pretty threatened. And the captain um, starts looking around and wondering what he's going to do. And other Bostonians come up to the captain, whom they know socially, and they say, what are you doing? Like, let's, you know, can you ratchet this down a little bit? And he says, oh, no worries. There are, you know, guns aren't loaded. It's going to be okay. Um, So people claim they have all different sorts of conversations with this captain. Um, and things get pretty chaotic. There's a lot of yelling, right? And people, the only word that people really claim they hear is the word fire. And they don't know. Is this, you know, people yelling, there's a fire. Where's the fire? I've got my bucket, right? Maybe these are Bostonians who are taunting the soldiers saying, you don't dare fire. You can't fire on us, right? We are civilians. We haven't done anything wrong. Nobody's read us the riot act. You don't dare fire, right? But 
possibly the soldiers heard, probably what the soldiers heard was a word that they interpreted as a command to fire. Um, but all we know is that they do fire. And when the smoke clears, as you started with, there are five people dead and dying on the snow and another six who've been wounded. And that's the moment that becomes known as the Boston Massacre. There is some sorrow in your voice because there's no video surveillance at the time. No. <laughs> and so there's a lot of this, I wish we knew this, I wish we knew that, at least I can hear it in your voice. Yes, I want to ask this. If, there, if I could magically produce for you the surveillance tape yeah. of a great overhead shot of whatever angle you wanted, as many angles right. as you wanted, what would be the first thing you would look for to clear up what happened? Oh, wow. That is a great question. I think there, there is a rumor that I would love to know if it's true or not, that some people claim that a different man comes up behind the soldiers and says, fire, I'll stand with you, right? And, um, that's, and to me, that would, that would help interpret a whole lot of things, right? If that person was there, then we could learn something about, well, was this whole thing a setup, which is actually what the army believes, right? Um, that, that this was all done you know, um, really just to ratchet things up to such a degree, right? Or is this some kind of self-serving argument? Um, you know, where is the officer actually standing? That, you know, if he's right there, I think that would tell us a lot also. My day job is as a, a TV news reporter. So I have literally looked at hundreds, <laughs> if not thousands of surveillance tapes. And I have also listened to probably many more accounts, firsthand accounts, mm -hmm. allegedly firsthand accounts of things that have happened. Um, confusing events that happen, things that are very multi-layered and things that may seem clear to you when you're looking back, but probably weren't as clear when it was actually happening. Um, yeah. How do these depositions then go? And it is so difficult to take people at their word because there's no worse witness than the eyewitness, right? Because what people think they're seeing is not necessarily what they're seeing. You have to piece it all together to come up with a really good solid accounting. Absolutely. I mean, even when they are, and you're totally right, even what they think they're seeing is not necessarily what they saw, right? Um, you know, partly, as I was saying, you know, because they don't see that well, but partly people see what they want to see and they interpret what they want to interpret, right? Um, when stuff's flying through the air, is it going to be that easy to tell whether someone's throwing a snowball or a rock? Probably not, right? Um, they're sound. And do you like the person who threw the snowball or the rock? Right, right. I think that's, so, so where, what are your sympathies leading you to see, right? And, that and how do these the color part. the, dep how do these color the depositions then? Right, right. So what I really came to, um, to find as I looked at these and worked through, you know, these hundreds of depositions um, was that they're, they're not good at telling you what happened that night, right? They're not good at telling you whose fault it was, who commanded, you know, who yelled fire. They, they don't tell you that. But it turns out they tell you all kinds of other things that we haven't paid enough attention to. And one of the things it turns out they tell you is that many of the people who were out there that night knew each other and had opinions about each other, as you said, right? Um, and that, you know, the men who are, some of those men who are the ones with the guns, right? They, they knew the people in, um, in that square, right? And many of the people in that square knew those soldiers personally. They had drunk with them. They talked with them. They bickered with them. Um, and it turns out that that really shapes the story more than we thought. How do the families of Boston change after this? Yeah, and that's another sad story. So the um, the soldiers, and you know, have many soldiers have married or made kind of fictive families in in Boston. And after the shooting, 
those troops are redeployed out of Boston, right? That's one of the agreements. Um, and so when they leave, all of these newly combined families are faced with choices, right? So the soldier, if the soldier decides that he wants to stay with his new family, he ends up doing something that looks a lot like desertion, right? Deserts the army. Um, and, you know, so he's got this problem there, but often um, families, well, the new families decide that they would like to stay together. Um, they either try to leave with, um, with the army. So embedding little pieces of Boston, right? Into the British army, they start traveling around the British empire as Bostonians who have now become army families, right? But it splits people up and it starts to divide, um, families in ways that are actually personal, right? And, and actual, not just kind of metaphorical. We talk about, you know, the British army, uh, excuse me, the, um, we talk about the, um, the British empire as a kind of family, right? We talk about ungrateful children and we talk about the mother country, but when the troops leave, what we see is the breakup of real families, not only these fictive ones. How did the different sides start, start to spin this? This, uh, we, I started with Paul Revere. Your book starts with Paul Revere. What yeah. then happens to the snowball that is the Boston shooting and I guess then becomes the Boston massacre in parlance? Right. And it becomes the Boston massacre very quickly, right? Um, I mean, that name gets stuck on it within, I don't know, 14 days, if not less, right? And, um, you know, and, and to this day, people are shocked that a massacre is five people, right? That's very effective as um, propaganda goes. Um, but it's, um, so, excuse me, the, um, the propaganda machine turns, goes into motion almost immediately on both sides, right? Because both sides are looking to place the blame, right? They've got different problems. The army really wants to say, this was not our fault. We were really restrained. Of course, we never shot civilians, right? The same thing that, you know, almost any army wants to say, and they know the playbook. They've already seen this happening before. Um, Bostonians need to tell a different story. They need to tell a story about their own injured innocence, that they never started anything, that they are not a people who likes to riot, and, you know, be out of control, right? That they are good British subjects, right? Who are absolutely pliant and obedient and all of those things. And they were doing nothing wrong. The problem was this enormous overweening political army that came and just mowed them down. Right. And so those are the stories they're trying to tell. They're not trying to tell stories about independence yet. Right. That comes later. This story gets picked up and used. Right. Um, after the tea party. And then certainly it becomes part of the story of the road to independence that starts to happen after Lexington and Concord. But in 1770, this propaganda is really about placing blame. It's not about creating a condition for independence. And there is a trial with somebody who is quite famous, very famous, one of maybe three or four most famous people in American history. John Adams defends uh, maybe he took a wrong turn or something. He defended the soldiers. How did that happen? And how did the, the trial really doesn't get us anywhere beyond saying that there was a trial, but, but how did that happen? John Adams defends the British. Right. So John Adams and Josiah Quincy, right. Um, turn end up defending these soldiers, right. Both the officer and the privates. And they do so in ways that absolutely are kind of complicated Right. So Adams claims that, you know, people turned to him when they had no choice, that no other um, lawyer would take the case. And that really just out of his own sense of ethics, he um, and his sense that everybody deserved a defense, he said he would defend the soldiers. Um, there's a political story here, too, which is that the town of Boston and the Sons of Liberty, of whom John Adams is a member, um, really do want to make sure that Boston comes out looking good, right? Um, and so part of his brief is to show that 
Boston is such a law-abiding town. It has so little to hide that they can put their best lawyers on the defense and Boston will still look good. And in fact, Adams is right. He manages to thread this tiny little needle where he both gets his clients off and he manages to show that this was not the fault of the town of Boston. The town of Boston is not a place that is you know, crazy and riotous. We don't do that here. Um, as I was reading your account of the, the, the trial um, and of the defense, I got these echoes of today's police shootings yeah. where, where the defense is often, um, what was I supposed to do? I was in fear for my life. Um, and, and it just was, it was an incredible parallel to read that. Have you reflected on that personally, that, that relationship? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and when I started this book, as I said, I started from this question about, you know, who are these soldiers wives and what are they doing in these houses? And I hadn't, I hadn't written it to reflect on police shootings, um, and what happens when, police become militarized. Um, but the events kind of overtook me in this book. Um, so yes, I do think that um, part, part of the argument and it's part of the playbook that maybe Adam's rights that we're still living with um, is both that the soldiers say they shot in self-defense. They, they didn't, you know, what else were they supposed to do? Um, that they they feared for their lives. And part of the argument is a big black man was coming at us, right? Um, that there is a racial piece to this. And we have not mentioned Crispus Attucks' name. Right. Um, talk about who he is and what we know about what what actually happened as opposed to what people say happened. Right. So um, Crispus Attucks is um, maybe one of the most mysterious men of the 18th century, someone about whom we all wish we knew so much more. Um, we do know that he was born enslaved in, in Framingham, Massachusetts, probably of mixed um, African and indigenous descent. Um, at some point, um, leaves his enslavement and um, becomes a sailor. Um, comes back to Boston um, as a sailor, certainly is in the streets that night um, with a number of other of other sailors um, and is one of the men who is shot. When Adams puts together his defense, the way he defends the town of Boston is to say, well, yes, these soldiers were afraid for their lives, but not because it was Bostonians who were threatening them. It was all these outside agitators. It was all these people who were not real Bostonians who don't really belong here. People who are Irish, people who are apprentices and people who are of mixed race, right? Um, and he says, it's those mulattoes. Those are the people who were the rioters, right? Um, and they don't really belong here. And that becomes part of the dynamic I think we continue to live with. What imprint does the massacre make on our founding documents in terms of what goes into the Declaration of Independence, what goes into the Constitution. And I'm thinking about the quartering of soldiers also in the Bill of Rights, but what imprints right. do you see on those documents? Yeah, I think um, the, the Bill of Rights one is, is complicated in some ways because the, the Quartering Act gets rewritten after this event um, to be the kind of the quartering act that then the Bill of Rights objects to, which says you can put soldiers in private homes. The quartering act actually looked different before 1770. And that's one of the reasons why, as I said, Boston becomes a huge Airbnb. Um, but, um, but it's in response to the Boston massacre that they changed the quartering act. And then that becomes a concern um, in the Bill of Rights. But I would say really the concern over, um, you know, what it means to allow a, a government to have soldiers, right? And this becomes one of the concerns really around the Second Amendment, um, which, you know, has, has a long and complicated 
history um, that, you know, I certainly wouldn't go into, but, um, but the question of what kind of power does a government have over its people and how does it manage its, its firepower, right? I do think sits, um, hangs over many of those founding documents. The Boston Massacre, and I'm really going to put you on the spot here. I'm sorry, but but I, I'm just going to. Uh, the Boston the Boston Massacre becomes this myth. It becomes a story to tell with political goals almost immediately, as you said. It became a massacre within less than two weeks. Can you think of other events like this in American history, maybe events of today, recent ones, or or maybe not so recent? Um that just sort of take on this, this moment. I mean, I'll say as someone who lives in Minnesota, that certainly this is true of, you know, killing of George Floyd, right? I mean, there have been, as, as we all know, hundreds of deaths of, you know, black men at the hands of police um, who don't become a movement, right? Um, and, you know, this was, different. Um, and so I would say, you know, maybe that's the one that's sitting with us today as we're doing this interview practically on the, the eve of the one year anniversary. Um, you know, but I think that there are other ones also that, um, that become that moment, um, you know, that become bigger than the moment themselves. I think that's what you're asking for, right? Yeah. Gettysburg, it, maybe. What, what did you say? Gettysburg. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe they are big, though. I, I, I was just thinking of the Kennedy assassination as it related to Lyndon Johnson's efforts to pass the Civil Rights Act, because he then uses the memory of President Kennedy to pass these massive bills. Now, that was a big event, the killing of a president in, in a public street. Um, but that might be one. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. So you're, you're asking sort of what creates the next... And there's a and there's also a violent end to some of these or violent beginning to some of these. I mean, the killing of George Floyd and President Kennedy. Um, but then I guess there are some events too, like Pearl Harbor, where you say, okay, I mean, there was a legitimate attack that was waged there, and the, and you know, um, clearly there was. Um, it didn't take much propaganda, although there was, but it didn't take much propaganda to spin that the way certain people wanted to spin it. How, how about how about the sinking of the Maine? What about that? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I think maybe both the sinking of the Maine and, and to some degree, maybe Pearl Harbor too, were prepared, right? Like the, I feel like the skids were already greased on where that propaganda was going to go. Right. And that's, that's sort of true of this event too. I mean, as I've been saying, you know, shootings by soldiers of civilians are not uncommon in the 18th century. And, Everybody knows what they're going to look like, but what what was unexpected with this is what came next, right? The way in which it gets picked up as a different kind of politics. Um, what do we learn about how important it is that government remain responsive and also transparent to its citizens? Yeah, I think that um, that we learn here about the ways in which ordinary people's attempts to live their lives, right? Whether that's marrying their neighbor, right? Or protesting, um, you know, either protesting in the street, which certainly was a major thing that happened in the 18th century, protesting by petition, uh, which is another way that people did it. But those forms of protest um, just occasionally made a big enough difference, right? That governments were forced to respond. That these ordinary acts by ordinary people actually sometimes do make change. And I think that that's maybe the story that we get from this, right? Boston is a wonderful city. It's a wonderful place. And I regret that I don't remember how the Boston massacre is memorialized there. Um, I assume you know. can, I'm sure you do. Can, uh, can you describe what it feels like to be there and what we would see around us today if we were to stand in that very spot? Absolutely. So 
unfortunately, the very spot where, um, where some people fell, at least because it's not a very big circle, um, is in the middle of a kind of traffic triangle. Um, so it's been somewhat moved to right in front of the <laughs> state house so that tourists are not mown down continuously. Um, and, um, and it's, it, it takes an active imagination, I have to say. So the, um, the old state house, as it's now called, the townhouse where the shooting happened is still located where it was with this incredible view down what's now State Street right out to the Long Wharf, which is where the aquarium is. But, but I mean, you're practically looking to London. I mean, you look down the street, it's uninterrupted right out to the Atlantic, right? You're looking right to that source of 18th century power, and that's still there. But at the time, the townhouse was one of the biggest buildings in Boston. And at the moment, it's really overshadowed by a whole lot of skyscrapers. It looks like, yeah. like a doll's toy, right? Um, and so it does take a little work to, to realize how, um, how dominant that building must have been once, right? That it's not anymore. But um, on the anniversary of the Boston Massacre, the, um, the group that runs the Old State House now called Revolutionary Spaces um, sponsors a um a set of reenactments that are quite spectacular um and you know really really well done um and you do feel i mean you're in a crowd watching and you feel a little bit of the that crowd feeling right what it's like to not quite know what's going on i mean i'm a short person and but i can't see over people like what is this i hear noise i hear yelling right um i feel energy and it teaches you something about what crowds are like. I have been to Boston and I have stood in these historic places where these incredible things have happened that have changed world history. And it is incredible to sit, to stand there and to look around and see today happening, to see life happening, to see business women and men walking around with their briefcases and to see shoppers going around Faneuil Hall and to see people wearing Red Sox hats and jerseys and all these other things that we're so used to. It is so important, I think, to sometimes just stop and think history really does march on and we have to acknowledge what has brought us to this moment. And also, if we were standing here 250 years ago, what would we see? Right. Yeah, yeah. it is very, it is a very wonderful thing to spend a moment thinking that I live in the present as I think about the past and those things are intertwined together on these stones in me as a person and the things that we think about. It's, it's very moving. Dr. Serena Zabin, author of The Boston Massacre, A Family History. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Certainly check out that book and her website, serenazabin.com. She's also on Twitter, at Serena Zabin. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. 